to the Reimagined Podcast, a podcast that seeks to reimagine faith and life in the community as we link, learn, and live together. I'm Greg English, along with Brad Hoffman and Brian Dupuy. Today, on episode 102, we talk with Alistair Stern on setting time aside to examine your patterns and habits and how it is you show up in this world. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Hi. Hey. <laughs> yeah, it's like, okay, uh, got the cue, got the... So, hey. uh, I have a question for you. Is that like... Uh, you notice how people do like, they'll do like 102 or is it 102? Do you pronounce it like as a letter or do you pronounce it as the number? Well, as I was reading, I was debating, do I even say 100? I mean, like... 102nd. Yes. I, but I went yeah. with, what did I go with? 102? 102. I'm probably going to go 103, 104, 205. I mean, that's, yeah. But it's really zero. I determine. I, de- I determine that. <laughs> you do, yeah. you do hey. determine that. You're right. I determine that. Episode one zero two. Yeah, you just stick, stick, you hang right over there, buddy. I'll just uh, stay here. I'll stay here. The, the seed of shame. I'll stay here. Yeah, yeah. robbing the joy of my day. You know, I blame Grammarly for this whole thing. Oh, that's it. Yeah, I'm introduced it, man. It's like, and they keep adding stuff to it. Yeah, it shows yeah. up on commercials everywhere. Yeah, you know? yeah. With the yeah. Little, the little green thing uh, in the hand, peace sign. Yeah. You got two. <laughs> but I happy like, face. I like to disagree with Grammarly. Uh, do you ever disagree with it? I don't have time for that. Huh? Yeah. No, really? Mm-hmm. Do you ever? No. <laughs> no. I take it for what no. it is. It's like my third grade teacher. I just do what she said. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> what happens when you disagree? You just dismiss it. Oh, oh, oh. Okay. But oh. then it come, like then if you come back in the document again a second time, it'll like go through the whole thing all over again. Oh. So you'll have to it it's rather mm, forceful in wanting to make the correction. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. Well. Well, this is gonna be good today. I can tell he's on it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Yeah, I feel bad. That's that's true. Speaking of third grade, just reminded me of something third grade. You ever thought about like what was going on in third grade that you would like to see return or come back? No. Mm. (laughs) I I got somewhere I'm going with this. Let me think. (laughs) What was the year? What was the year? 1980 something. That's right. Oh wow. Yeah. No, I'm not. How old are you? Third grade? Are you like five, six, eight, eight? Eight. 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 Yeah. Right. Yeah. Eight or eight nine. nine. Eight or nine. Yeah. yeah. Something yeah. like that. Yeah. So it all depends on the, on the child, you know? Yeah. Yeah. But, um, so anyhow, well, I was, the, um, Monday, the weather was really good here. Yeah. You know, this mm-hmm. week our weather pattern is, it's like, um, it's like the lottery money ball here. Oh, you know, it's yeah, 80, yeah, yeah. 80, 13, 25, 50. I went home and changed. Six, lunch, yeah, yeah. 66 tomorrow, you know? So yep. Monday was really nice. So I got home and Kelly and I said, well, hey, let's go for a walk, you know? And so we went over and walked down uh, downtown and went into VCU towards Monument, uh, I mean, Monroe Park in that area. And of yeah. course, all the students are hanging out. And I mean, if you want oh, to sure. experience culture, you know, I, yeah. you know, go down there and check this out. And you're seeing everybody there. But what was happening, and I've seen it a couple of times before, what was happening is the return of the roller skate. Yeah? Yes. Really? Yes. Not like one or two. line or like the true roller No, true roller like skates. Like the Like the four wheels with the knobs on it. On, yeah. And, and I, back the in break. third grade. Uh, yes. Back in third grade, <laughs> yeah. I, hey, I quit putting on the boot that was sprayed a thousand times. Uh-huh. I had my own black pair with yellow wheels, baby. Did you I, really? Oh, I'd work that left-hand turn like it was nothing. Oh, come on. <laughs> yes, sir. Come on. Yes, sir. I mean, I did the same thing, but I was holding on to the shag uh, carpet wall as I went around <laughs> with the, the roller rink. making for you skate night. Yeah. For skate yeah. night. Yeah. But no, no, I mean, there were groups. Groups in teams of people f- coming down through the park and, you know, helmet, knee pad and roller skates. Really? You, teams of people. Like a... Seven or eight. Like a gang yes, of yes, roller skaters. Yes. I looked at Kelly. I said, step off the side here. I mean, we're getting ready to get taken out. <laughs> like roller derby. Yeah. Did they have the long, long socks some, up? Some did. Had oh, shorts on. Come on. No. But, but yeah. one, one guy, one, there was one guy coming down one way yeah. and he had his headphones on and he just had a sway. I yeah, mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, he yeah. was just swaying to the music. Yeah. Only if they could see me doing this, what I'm doing right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, they I'm were swaying. swaying they were, yeah. yeah. I mean, he, and you know, you know how you take that front foot and, yes. and that back foot goes way out to the left, you bring it back. I mean, oh yeah, oh yeah, yeah. unbelievable. Like not a care in the world. He's reliving no. his childhood yeah. right here, yeah. right in front of us. You Boy, know, yeah. my, my experience was never that peaceful. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. <clears throat> you know, no. I mean, think about it. You know, uh, then you had you had you know, guy skate only. Yes, when we sweat, my, that, my, we sweat that thing out. Nobody, you know, that yeah. was your that was your time to shine. 
my yeah. experience of skating is like a skating class in junior high school. So we had like PE. You did skating. Really? Yeah, we had like skating class for one semester. Oh. So we took a bus, wow. skating rink around the corner. And um, so my, my thought is doing the same thing. The shag carpet, yeah. working the walls while you're listening to the BGs <laughs> in the background. It's like rug, it's like rug uh-huh. burn on your palms. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh, wow. Huh, I just thought that? about things I hadn't thought about in a while. Yeah. Well, that's you know, it's that's a helpful thing to have a roller skating class because, oh man, that was the social scene. And if you didn't know how to operate in that space, you were <laughs> you were over playing uh, video games with your skates on. Yeah, just staring at people. You know, just just a little switch in the the type of venue, but the ice skating they do over in Williamsburg. They're on the. Um, main stretch or anything. Yeah. So uh, we were over there. Gloucester. Yeah, we were over there the, a couple of weeks and weekends ago. And they have, which I thought was really cool for beginners that yeah. are doing the ice skating. They had yeah. like walkers that yeah. they put on the ice. I had never seen that yeah, before. Yeah. I'm like, where was that when I was trying that or when I was skating? I would have done, I've done a walker and do that. So yeah. Yeah. it's kind of cool, but sitting your ankles. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah. I don't know. I just went legendary on you guys. Yeah, you did. That's incredible. Did. I'm impressed. Carrying the boom box on his shoulder while I'm he's impressed. skating down the... Can't, can't wait. Can't wait. Can't wait. I, I got the, walk, got the, the image Walkman's? in my mind. Oh, yeah. I used to talk the... Oh, yeah, yeah. The Walkman to your hip and like you, it's yeah. the little fuzzy earphones and yeah. all that. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I'm impressed, but let's skate on. <laughs> we are. We, we, we are. So, and, I, and actually, I'm going to ask this. I'm going to ask this question uh, about the skating uh, in this uh, introduction here. So, yeah. 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 So today, we're really excited uh, to welcome Alistair Stern to our podcast. He's the lead pastor of St. Peter's Fireside Anglican Church in Vancouver, British Columbia. He's a leader in the church planning for the Anglican Church. Uh, planning network in Canada. Uh, he's earned his master's in biblical studies degree from here again, uh-oh, uh-oh, here again, uh-oh. another Asbury. I, another one. I another didn't even one. set this one up. Yes. I, I, this wasn't even me. <laughs> yeah, so we'll have to pause for five minutes for them. He earned his uh, biblical studies degree from Asbury Theological and doctorate work from uh, in intercultural studies from Fuller Theological. Pasadena. Uh, and he is the author of Rhythms of Life, Spiritual Practices for Who God Made You to Be. Alistair resides in Vancouver, is married, and has two uh, daughters. Welcome to the podcast today. Hey, good to be here. Thanks for having me. I love the roller skating banter because early in the pandemic, my wife went out and bought roller skates uh-huh. for her and the kids. I didn't want a pair. And they would, they would, they would just kind of like roller skate around our living room. That's how we got exercise during lockdown. And uh, it made me think, though, like you admiring all these roller skaters. I was like, so what you actually want from the third grade is that unbridled confidence. Ooh, yeah. That's right. Yeah. That's right. To be the person who has the confidence to put on roller skates as an adult. <laughs> And do the sway in public. Yeah. Well, we thank we hey, not even care. We we, we thank you yeah. for being on the show. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we just jump right into this. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. But but, oh, I, but I think you're right because that goes back to something, Brian. We've talked about it. There's there's some music venues in, in Richmond too. Yeah. And there's a guy that comes out there. He's got to be in his fifties. Yeah. Uh, and and he's like a buck twenty five wet, but he is a dancing shagging machine. Yeah. yeah. And you and I have seen him, and we've often said. Inside, I want to be that. Yeah, yeah. Like, how does that come out? So yeah. I don't disagree with you that, but I would rather actually be a ice hockey player. So I want to ask you about that. Did you have ice skates? I, I played hockey growing up. Um, I played until you were old enough to get hit on the ice. And oh. then I got hit once and I was like, I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> I don't need full body contact on a sheet of ice. I'll focus on baseball. And then I played baseball until I was 18. Oh, great. There you go. Uh, great. Yeah. So do you guys follow the Seattle Mariners? Uh, Toronto Blue Jays fan uh, yeah. growing up. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, Vancouver Canucks fan hockey. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, we did a we did a uh, Blue Jay game. Um, we did a group up uh, Toronto on the other side mm-hmm. um, a couple of years ago back. Yeah, so that was fun. That was great. That was a great. Game. That's a very clean stadium. Beautiful I'm a, stadium. I'm gonna get yeah. off track, but it's, yeah. I was very impressed. Yeah. Mm. So let's uh, go into the podcast. For the reason we're here is about the rhythms of life and having that conversation. Right. <laughs> uh, Alistair, if you can just tell our listeners a little bit, share your story with us, and uh, how you arrived here. Sure thing. Um, so rhythms for life was a originally just discipleship material that my team and I wrote for our local church. And we were using it for a couple of years in these very, um, almost more like boot camp retreats that we would do with our church to say, Hey, if you want to bring some more intentionality into your walk with Christ, 
uh, sign up for this day and a half retreat. Uh, we're in the downtown core. So getting people to do an overnight thing is next to impossible. And, and so it'd be like a Sunday afternoon and then the next Saturday. And so we were doing that kind of revising the material as we go. And then a partner of ours, Redeemer city to city in New York caught wind of what we were doing and asked us to create a version for other churches to use. So we made some revisions and ultimately that led to it uh, getting picked up by InterVarsity, And they asked me to, to add some more material. So it kind of took a life of its own over a couple of years, but what I enjoyed about writing that book and um, what I've enjoyed about seeing how it's formed our own church is that this is really a material from the church for the church. Mm. So even though my name is on it, um, this wasn't just like, Oh, I, I locked myself away in a room and had a bunch of ideas. It actually came out on the ground, uh, as we worked through, um, the real issues of discipleship of look, it's one thing to know about Jesus. It's another thing to follow him and to seek him day after day. And, and so we had feedback from people working through this. We changed things along the way. And then I infused it with all these stories that were just coming out of our local church. And so it's been really neat to see Rhythms for Life released into the world and, and other churches uh, picking it up. Uh, it's great to be an author of an average national seller, you know, these sort of things. Um, but, it, it, you know, the, the, the heartbeat of the book is to say, um, rarely does someone become more Christ-like by accident. Mm-hmm. Now, the Holy Spirit is always at work in us sanctifying us, transforming us, um, always doing more than we're aware of. But very rarely do I see someone who just accidentally becomes more like Jesus because they once professed their faith in him. Mm. Really the journey into growing in his likeness is one that takes effort, not earning as Dallas Willard would put it Uh, a lot of effort, Mm -hmm. but you can't earn it. It's a gift but it's also a gift you put on and wear and it transforms you. And so that was really the goal of the book is to help people learn how to put in a gracious effort, not an earning effort. Mm, I like that. I like that phrase, gracious effort. Mm-hmm. So how would you define Christ likeness? Because I mean, I think uh, we, we may have an idea of what Christ likeness is as a result of I've made a decision. That's it. This is who I am. Mm-hmm. So how, how would you uh, define that word for people? Yeah, for me, and I think for, for many, Christ-likeness is, it has to go beyond just imitation. So it's one thing to learn about Jesus, understand his character, see the sort of things he did, what he was about, what he uh, taught about God, and what he promised even about God. That, that's Christ. And so you would assume Christ-likeness is just trying to imitate that. And there's truth that we do need to put in some effort in imitation. But the promises throughout scripture is not just that we imitate Christ it's that we abide in him and he abides in us Mm -hmm. and that we're transformed degree by degree into his very likeness. Uh, I like C.S. Lewis, uh, the way he puts it is we have actually no personality until we find our personality in Christ. Mm, And so Christ likeness is Christ uniquely dwelling in us and shining through us without eradicating the person he made us to be. And so there's this mosaic of, of possibilities of um, little personalities, little Christ's in humanity, bearing his image uh, that ultimately give us the picture of full Christ likeness. And so to me, Christ likeness is becoming more and more like Christ not just through imitation, but through the actual transformation of his spirit in us mm. so that we share in his likeness. That's deep, man. Because, yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, there is a lot of imitation out there. Yeah. I mean, we, 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 we deal with that in fostering in the formation kind of piece, but uh, to recognize there's more to it than that is, is powerful. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting to me. He, he, you mentioned Dallas Willard, and no, just the number of conversations lately, the influence that that Dallas has had on 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 people and writers and things like that, and um, it's it's just neat how that's coming coming yeah. back. Yeah. So yeah, yeah Dallas. I was introduced to Dallas Willard on a layover in Boise, Idaho. I'd never 
I didn't even know Boise existed, to be honest. <laughs> it's a great place. My flight, <laughs> my flight got diverted because of an engine failure, and then I was stuck in Boise for eight hours. Oh, wow. And so I bought a T-shirt. That's how most people arrive in Boise. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's how no, Boise was born. I, a wedding. I went and did a wedding yeah. there. So, yeah, 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 I've been there for yeah. a couple of days. Yeah. Uh, and I had the divine conspiracy with me, and I, I made the mistake of reading it in one sitting, which no one should attempt to do. No one does. Um, <laughs> you do. But I wasn't the same afterward, you know, like of just encountering uh, the way Willard thought and, and the way he envisioned the kingdom, not just being a future thing, but a attainable present reality. Uh, and yet not, you know, blurring the line between the already and the not yet. And, and, and that I think is some of Willard's greatest contributions is, that the Sermon on the Mount isn't just to condemn us, but actually a way of life that Jesus makes possible. Mm -hmm. uh, a vision of what Christ-likeness can look like for a community that repents and puts their faith in him and follows him. Yeah. yeah. That's good. Who else? Who else uh, besides Dallas Willard, who else are, are some of the influences that helped shape you as you, as you were putting this together? Honey, that's a question that always makes me nervous. Yeah. <laughs> um, only because, so uh, part of my church planning journey, we partnered with Redeemer City to City in New York, which is Tim Keller's network. And so we, my wife and I, we didn't have kids at the time. We moved to New York for six weeks to do this training. But before all of that, we had to do these interviews with, with the, the team with Redeemer. And um, they asked me that question, like, who are your influences? And I didn't want to be like a Tim Keller fanboy, So I didn't say Tim. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I said like all these kind of obscure theologians I've been reading in my masters. And they're like, so you don't read Tim Keller? <laughs> Just outright. And I, I go, um, no, I read, I read his work. And they're like, what do you think of it? <laughs> it's good. It's good. I wouldn't be talking to you otherwise. So yeah. I always get nervous. Like, who am I supposed to say? But <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, Frankly, uh, I, I kind of stumbled into the spiritual practices or spiritual disciplines literature. Um, that kind of came secondarily. So my passion theologically has been um, participation with Christ, union with Christ, uh, what Orthodox theologians would call theosis or deification. Um, so heavily influenced by a scholar named Michael Gorman. Um, he's not as well known as I think he should be. I mean, he's, he's incredibly influential contemporary of N.T. Wright, um, that kind of world. Uh, but what I like about his work in particular is that he's a, he's a Methodist, which sadly doesn't really exist in Canada, but he has the new Testament chair at a Catholic seminary. Hmm. And then he gave, and also engages with all these Orthodox thinkers. And so he works very hard to build bridges between those communities of here's a doctrine that we all agree on, but we also have different thinking on how, how do we bring this into conversation with the new Testament and one another. And so his work on what it means for us to be united in Christ, the, that salvation is really about uh, being in Christ, mm -hmm. which I think gets lost in a lot of Protestant thought sometimes not on purpose. And I think a lot of people actually would say, no union is very important. Obviously if you read John Calvin, like union is everywhere. Um, but that, that principle that it's not just believing the right things it's that you're grafted into Christ or John's gospel. You believe not in Christ and John, it's always the Greek word for into, but translations it's awkward, right? To say you believe into Christ, but that's what it is. You believe into him. You're united to him. You're married to him. You're his body. There's this intimate engrafting into the reality that is Jesus Christ, his living spirit in you. And so it's, it's writings like Michael Gorman and, and others who, who really inspire my vision of what it means to be a Christian. Because it's far more exciting than just believing the correct things. Now, don't get me wrong. I think correct theology is crucial. If we, if we don't believe the right things, how on earth can we really dwell in Christ? So all of this is contingent upon sound or um, living doctrine, as Paul might put it, right? And so Michael Gorman uh, would be a big influence. Um, 
another kind of lasting influence for me is obviously Tim Keller. Um, and that would be from a different angle, but what Keller really did was help all these kind of high level readings I've done in seminary about contextualization. He really put boots to the ground of what that means for a pastor in an urban context. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's been a question of marrying those two ideas. Okay. We're united to Christ. And this can also just become a heady thing. Mm -hmm. What does it look like to find that on the ground in Vancouver with Vancouverites who are struggling to follow Jesus? And what does it mean to grow as disciples in his likeness? So those are two big influences uh, on my thinking. Um, you know, I could list a bunch, but I, I would say in terms of what led to Rhythms for Life, it's funny. I, I, I think I quote Keller at least once or twice in Rhythms because um, you kind of have to when Redeemer City to City is <laughs> yeah, it's not, shopping it's it. Nice. It's, a, it's a courtesy, yeah, really. Exactly. really. Yeah, I'm just trying to help Tim get more exposure. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, I don't think I actually bring up Michael Gorman in the book, which is sad. Um and I find his writings not the most accessible for everybody. Like whenever I recommend a book, someone's like, uh, I don't, I don't know what this guy's going on about. So mm -hmm. if you're interested in union with Christ, there's a guy, his name is escaping right now, but he wrote a book called union in Christ. I think it, his last name's Rankin Wayneborn or something like that. Hmm. Uh, we can look, you guys can kind of correct that and just yeah. do a voiceover yeah. after <laughs> But that book is an incredibly accessible and helpful introduction into this doctrine of union with Christ is actually what salvation is all about. Yes. Forgiveness of sins. Yes. Reconciliation to God for what being united to him, sharing in his life, like eternal life. Isn't just that our lives get extended. It's that we share in the very life of God yep. forever world without end. I'm preaching at this point. So no, yeah, good, some questions. Good. Yeah, you, good. you got the microphone, man. That's good. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so when you, if somebody asks you, you know, what's rhythms, uh, rhythms for life, what's it about? Um, how do you, what's the elevator pitch on the work that you did there? Yeah, I, I essentially, it's about two things. First is a, a healthy approach to self understanding and exploration. Mm -hmm. And the second is discovering how certain spiritual practices can empower you in becoming who you were made to be. So the first half of the book is about exploring who you are. And the second half is about actual practices who, that help you become who you are or sustain you in that pursuit. And so what I was trying to do in that book and, and, and why we felt it needed to be written, even though there's other books that talk about spiritual practice or other books that help you explore who you are is that I found a gap between spiritual practices and connecting them to vocation that our vocations were called to Christ. We're called to share in his likeness. Uh, that might be articulated in a lot of different ways, you know, and depending what you do in life and how you're gifted, but how do our spiritual practices actually sustain our vocation? So something like Bible reading can sometimes become disconnected, right? It's like, well, we should read the Bible because like, it's the Bible and then we're supposed to read it and we lose sight of like, yeah, but this reading, like, what's the point? And, and, and that one's kind of more obvious. I think people could answer the question, well, to discover who God is and to be exposed to his revelation. Um, but then you take a practice like prayer or you take a practice like contemplation or you take a practice like hospitality and they start turning into things that we're just supposed to do which is in a weird way, like a, it can become a moralism. Like, well, these are just things Christians do. Uh, but what I'm trying to do in the book is say, no, these are expressions of who we are. Uh, and that in doing these things, it kind of goes both ways. The, the doing helps you become who you are and who you are influences the doing. And that it's not this one way street is it's more of a, a circular experience. Uh, and so the book's goal was to at least try to bridge a gap there. If you have a better understanding of who Christ has distinctly made you to be within your community, what spiritual practices are going to, for the season you're in, help you become that person and express who you are for the benefit and common good of the church and the world. So the 
First, I mean, you list a couple of things in the book in terms of identity, uh, vocation, roles. There's there's a couple of different talking points there. But if we just talk about identity for the moment, just kind of what you related mm-hmm. there, you know, and, and looking at the identity portion there, it's in the practices or the questions, um, even with the values, you have a value section in there and you give a, um, a, a tool that says, no, how to understand your values, where you fall in your strong suit, where you fall in your, in your, your weaknesses or whatever, what describes you or whatever. So identity is a real thing. And, and you jump right into that. And it's almost, is it as like, it's about deconstructing who we think we are so we, we can reconstruct who God says we are. And how do we discern the examination of that self-awareness? How, how would you encourage people in that? I, there's a lot of questions in that one question. <laughs> he has a tendency to do that. But so it's, yeah. So deconstruction, Go Go reconstruction. <laughs> yeah. I think deconstruction has become a funny word that means too many things that it, it ultimately means nothing. So, you know, deconstruction and reconstruction understood as trying to get the clutter out of the way so we can really build on the foundation of Christ. If that's what we mean by it, Yeah, there's a better word discipleship, right? That's yeah. That's what it is. We should always be removing the clutter so that we can see Christ more clearly and build our foundation on him. And yes, that's what we're trying to do in the first half of the book. So identity to me is, um, it's an important and dangerous topic. Important because of course, everybody's asking who I am, who, who am I? Dangerous because it can become um, excessively individualistic. So it can become this thing where it's no, I, I need to define who I am rather than discover who I am in Christ. And it sounds subtle, but it's actually a massive difference. Mm -hmm. Like our lives are hidden in Christ, according to Paul. So to some degree, you're never fully going to know who you are. That, that, that would be a core conviction of mine that you're always in this process of discovering who you are in Christ, receiving who you are in Christ, learning to become your true self in Christ and having to unravel all the stories and history uh, and battles with the flesh uh, that confuse you in the process. And so identity to me is very important to be able to answer who am I and as I frame it in the first chapter, whose am I? Mm-hmm. And those are, those are different questions. Who am I? Well, I could list a whole bunch of things, right? Family history, uh, relationships, uh, convictions, and all those things would contribute to a sense of, of self. But whose am I? Am I my own? Because that will influence how I live, mm-hmm. how I vision life. Or, I, or do I belong to Christ? Or as Paul would put it, like, my body isn't even my own. I belong to Christ. And so based off of that conviction, we can discover our identity in Christ as children of God, beloved, uh, called, sent, you know, on and on we could go. And so in the work on identity and and values and roles and gifts, things I explore in that first half of the book, the goal isn't necessarily like getting it all clear. Uh, Very rarely does someone go through that first half and feel like they got it all down. If anything, it's just getting people asking the right questions. And what the outcome is though, is a better understanding of where you are in that journey toward Christ. So it's one thing like all four of us would say we're children of God. Absolutely. Um, But how do you articulate that in this moment that it actually like sinks down and settles your soul in the presence of Christ? For me, like just saying like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm a beloved child. It actually doesn't do a lot. Now, of course, I care about that. Mm-hmm. But when I, when I sit still in the past couple of weeks, it, it's actually having to say like, I'm accepted in Christ. Now, of course, I'm accepted as a, because I'm a child, right? But it's, it's, it's finding those, those, I'd say, on-ramps into that bigger truth. Mm-hmm. That is the goal of those opening chapters. So even values, um, which I... I I try to frame as virtuous values. So it's not just, Oh, I, I, I define meaning and purpose in this world for myself. No, like there's virtuous values that bring us into true meeting that is beyond ourselves. Um, but those values again are, are bridges into something bigger. So you could say, well, I value family. Great. But what about family do you value? 
tangible connection being seen and known. Oh, okay. So what you actually value then is intimacy, right? And that intimacy is with others and with God, because we're made to love God and, and love one another. And, and so that value, um, when your life feels off kilter, you can say, well, what's going on here? It's not that you've lost your identity necessarily. It's just that your values aren't being lived out and therefore your identity feels cluttered. And so I'm just trying to draw a thread between all those things of saying, look, identity, I think we can become a little reductionistic in evangelical circles because we say, well, the solution is identity in Christ. If you just get straight who you are in Christ, that's the problem, right? Like you just, you just need to know who you are in Christ. And it's a little reductionistic Mm -hmm. because there's a whole lot of other things that factor in, like you might actually be incredibly clear on who you are in Christ, but you're really struggling through life because your values are all out of whack because of demands in your job or whatnot. And just telling yourself, well, I'm a beloved child of Christ isn't actually um, the right application of identity in that particular instance, for example. Now, of course, there are times when people aren't clear on that and, and you have to help them work through that first thing. But what I'm just trying to show in that first half of the book is that identity, spiritual gifts, talents, personality, values, your roles, um, all of that kind of plays a factor in a bigger, I think, umbrella, which is vocation. Mm-hmm. That we're all called to Christ to uniquely live out who we are before his face. And that's the, the calling and destiny of everyone who would call themselves a Christian. Mm-hmm. I was thinking about the term that I loved in, in, in there. It was... Um, you go back to vocation. You mentioned three things, the creational, the redemptive, and the missional vocation that, um, you know, we, we go through and, and how that's played out. But the redemptive is the, the call of Jesus where he says, follow me. And that's really what he, I mean, that's what he's asking us. That's the restoration process. Just follow me. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that jumped out to me, just that simple statement in, in that section there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. So you... um. In terms of like the second half of the book, and um, and it's almost a customization. That's probably a very uh, simplistic word um, to it, but it is kind of the aspect that I think is unique here. Um, it's not a one size. You know, it's not this. I mean, it does become moralistic when we think this, 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 this. So it is this kind of customization. So, can you speak to how you take this? Um, who you are kind of in Christ um, and how that's lived out. Like you, as you talk about in the back half of the book. Yeah. Um, so the, the second half, yeah, there's exercises to start experimenting or developing a set of practices mm-hmm. in four categories, you know, up to God into self uh, within community and out on mission. And that you want, you know, a variety of practices that help you move in those four directions. And you could probably add more directions and you could probably add more practices. You know, it's just kind of wetting people's appetite. Right. Um, but for example, I'll just use myself as an example. So if my fundamental identity that I'm connecting with in Christ is that I'm accepted uh, and I have a spiritual gift of teaching and have roles as a husband and a father and as a pastor, as a scholar, as you name it, friend, family. And I sense my vocation to be something like um, accepting that a full life is the fullness of God, right? like living into that. When it comes to spiritual practices, then it's like, what fuels all of that? Mm-hmm. So for me, every morning, you know, I get up before my children with my wife and actually our oldest daughter gets up with us now. And it just looks like very quiet, slow readings of scripture, each on our own in different parts of our living room. And, and I write my prayers out in my journal in the morning. I mean, I would pray out loud too sometimes, but it's just, it's quiet. It's contemplative. Uh, if I don't do that every day, like I just can't get through my day. Hmm. And I have my own kind of reading plans that I use, like in terms of how much scripture and what sort of scriptures, so like I'm in the Psalms every day. I'm in Proverbs every day. And part of the old Testament and part of the new. Now that amount of Bible reading though, I discovered like crushes some people for me, like it totally fuels me. And so for someone different, and this is the, the kind of customization or 
not a one size fits all approach is, Hey, like sometimes you're in a season where like, just take not even a whole Psalm, like half a Psalm and just meditate on it, pray it, dwell with it, you know, read through a gospel, but like put it down when you're not focused, Mm -hmm. go back and just like read it slowly. Right. And I think as pastors, we can be inclined to say like, like it's so good to read the Bible in a year and to kind of build that, that, that knowledge and understanding and to see things afresh. And like, of course, right. Like it is good, but is it always the right thing for someone to do in a given season? Mm -hmm. And could it actually end up becoming more of a burden than a gift? And so there's been seasons in my life where like, yeah, that sort of dwelling in the word and prayer um, sustains me in my say vocation as a pastor, but then things are going on, like say new kids, like when our kids were born. Right. And you just can't, like, you don't have that contemplative capacity, like getting up in the morning, like, no, I'm just going to sleep. Right. And, <laughs> and so your rhythm needs to change. Right. Of, Okay. Well, like actually then it became like during my lunch, I would sneak away some time um, and it'd be shorter and quicker, but it's still meaningful. Uh, and then, so there's other rhythms, like for me, like with mental health challenges, um, like a practice of keeping a gratitude journal is to me as important as like eating three meals a day. Mm. Like, like it's, it's up there exercise, right. Of like staying on top of running, um, even when it gets cold out, you know, that those sort of things uh, don't sound all that spiritual at first, but are profoundly important. Mm-hmm. And gratitude actually should sound more spiritual. I mean, it's commanded. Right. This is the will of God for your life. Rejoice always. I mean, the will of God, mm-hmm. give thanks in all circumstances, the will of God, not just like a suggestion, but God's will. So if you're, if, you're, if any listeners confused, like what's God's will for my life, it's usually externalized into like, what should I do? Right. But go to first Thessalonians. God's will for your life is what your sanctification. That's the first thing Paul says. And then the second time he says, this is the will of God for your life. It is rejoice. Always give thanks in all circumstances, pray without ceasing. Mm -hmm. So at the very least learning to give thanks um, every day will keep you in the will of God. Mm -hmm. And so those are the sort of practices I'm talking about and trying to get people to explore is it's one thing to say, let's do that. It's another thing to figure out what that looks like for you. So for me, it's like this little journal I use uh, for other people. It might not be a journal. It might be something like um, uh, Ignatian examine at the end of the day, where you reflect on your whole day and you give thanks for the good and the bad in it. <laughs> I laugh because I know <laughs> uh, it, it, it's, it's um, what you're talking about is you're actually talking about me and Brian, I am the journal writer of my prayers like you. I carry that thing everywhere. I have the similar rhythms to what you have. Yesterday, Brian and I were in a conversation about prayer and discipleship, and we were exactly, and he was mentioned that that's the first thing he sends out to people is the examine, you yeah. know, yeah. prayer piece there. So mm-hmm. that's a, it's, it's yeah. just. And, and just learning here meets, you know, yeah, two, yeah. two different rhythms. That's right. Well, yeah. and, and that brings up another question. I mean, in, in some respects, people can feel guilty if they don't live out a certain tradition or practice or they don't live up to the standard that they think someone else has that has the appearance of being in Christ, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. So it is. How do you speak to and I think anytime you're dealing with spiritual disciplines and practices, I think you have to you have to shade that conversation in such a way that it's not that you have to read all this at one sitting or pray this way in a certain way or journal this way or, or meditate. I mean, it's like, Mm. I think it can become overwhelming. I mean, first of all, they think they have to do all at one time or in a certain way, but how do you help somebody um, not feel guilty about their rhythm looks different? Or their practice, and it looks as you talk about. It, it looks different in different seasons of life. Somebody that has a newborn, it's going to look a whole lot different than an empty nester, you know, uh, in a sense of what their household looks like. Is there? Can you speak into that at all? Yeah, I, I've had to intentionally make shifts in my language in a bigger picture. So when I'm writing communications or preaching or or you name it, uh, if I'm going to talk about spiritual disciplines. I try to put a heavy emphasis on expressions of discipline. So if I'm going to say, talk about Bible reading, I'm going to tell people about like three different ways you can do it Yeah. or prayer. I'm going to be like, here, 
find the expression that might work for you and that there's a wealth of it. Um, when people are feeling like they can't do it where they're overwhelmed. Um, I mean, you always have to diagnose and figure out what, what's going on because in Vancouver, we have like a very high achieving group of people where it's like, okay, so you can train for like an iron man, <laughs> like, you, like discipline isn't an issue for you. And yet you're struggling to pray. So like something's going on here versus the person, like they're so crushed by work that they just, they feel like adding another thing is just, they, they're just too exhausted. Right. Like, so there's, it's always kind of sitting with people and figuring out first what's going on and making room for it. And, and usually I start with like, Hey, look, you don't ever have to pick up your Bible ever again. You don't ever have to say another prayer again. You don't ever have to go to church again. Like I just, I just lay it out there. Like if you really believe that you're saved by grace through faith, and it's not even your faith, but the faithfulness of Jesus that saves you. Your faith just opens you up to that reality. Um, it's not the strength of your faith, but the, the object of your faith. And then you don't have to do anything. And like, as pastors, we get nervous saying that kind of thing because we don't want people to get lazy, right? But it's true. Like, like how much of the church throughout history had no access to the Bible? Mm. None. They didn't even know how to read. There wasn't, there wasn't even a printing press. Like, I, I think we get so caught up in our context that we forget like that salvation is big enough that even for the person who has no spiritual discipline, they can follow Christ. Um, now, that's where I start. I just want to disarm people and remind them, like, you don't have to do a thing. Everything's been done for you. If you're going to do one thing, What's the one thing you need right now? Like, what's the one thing that would help you stay with Christ? And then we discern that. And it, it's not always the, the answer you'd think. But what I've found is if I can help people identify the one thing, uh, whatever it may be for that season and where they're at, um, it, it usually eventually leads to another thing. Mm-hmm. And so for the person who's in the office too much and, and, maybe have like a really cognitively demanding job and feel guilty that they don't want to read the Bible or read another book about Jesus. I say, Hey, why don't you go for a walk in a park every morning and just talk to God on your walk Mm. or just like try to say thank you for the sounds you hear, the fact that you have breath in your lungs, that there's a world to even observe with your eyes, that there's even language, you know, like, and, and just cultivate thankfulness on a walk, like do something embodied, Uh, And that usually then becomes a stepping stone. And so that's actually where I end the book is saying, look, like write down all these things that you're going to do. Do you feel like this is going to be exhausting? Then like erase all of them and keep the things that you need. Uh, Yeah. Good advice. Right. Do you think, uh, do you think sometimes we can fall into, we as the church uh, or at least the Western church, could we, can we fall into this, this kind of cookie cutter approach to discipleship? And so, you know, um, you're, you're now a follower here, here's this, here's this, here's your five, you know, and, um, check the boxes. Yeah. Yeah. Which in what you're talking about is much more nuanced. (laughs) It's much more, you've got to be up close and personal with somebody, you know, it's a, it's, it's, it's a different approach than saying, well, here's your standard issue stuff and, and, you know, good luck read your Bible, pray every day and you'll grow, grow, grow. You know, uh, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah. It, it seems like, it, it seems like um, that goes against some of those, those things that you're, you're suggesting. Yeah. I, discipleship is just such a challenge period. And, and so I don't know if it's a, a challenge in every context, uh, but I think every context presents its own uh, struggles. So wherever your location is within the Christian faith and within the world, um, there'll be strengths and weaknesses to how you can approach discipleship. The the one thing that is infuriating is you just can't program it. Mm -hmm. So you can create opportunities and contexts and places and spaces and even curriculum, like a book, like rhythms for life. Like we run this thing. Like, I think it's like one of the best resources in our church, not because I wrote it, but because of the people who, who helped write it and created like the, the supporting workbook we use in the context of like groups going through it together over a long period of time. Like if someone does that and really engages it, like, I don't know how you 
come out of that not formed more into Christ likeness. And yet it happens. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, and so I think the, the, the first thing, and it's such a frustrating reality is you just can't program discipleship. Like it, it happened. Like it doesn't mean you don't create opportunities for it or context for it to take place, but it really is personal because at the end of the day, we are talking about persons in relationship to Christ and one another. And so it doesn't matter if your church is big or small. I, I don't think one or the other is more prone to be successful at discipleship. I think what, what matters is our people being empowered to realize like it, it takes effort. <laughs> like, and I, I think we, that weird faith works argument that somehow dominated the Protestant reformation. Like we still have this like hangover about it. Don't we? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Of we're just so afraid of emphasizing works. Mm -hmm. Bible isn't. No, no. You're set apart for good works. Like yeah. it's not any clearer. Faith without works is dead. Mm -hmm. Like and and Paul, like when he's saying we're not saved by works, like it's very specific. And we don't have to go into all of that. But like, you know, the Bible is not afraid of calling us to do stuff and put in effort and. And I think the failure of discipleship is, is because we can either one, like call people to that good work without them first grasping grace. And that, that's a danger. Mm -hmm. So like grace will inspire the good works and empower them. Or we preach grace, but in a cheap way so that that grace isn't understood as something that is not just a gift, but also a transformative reality mm -hmm. and a new existence. Mm -hmm. And so those are some of the, maybe the cognitive issues that are going place or the, maybe the principles that are maybe impeding us from both calling people to grace and to a life of effort, a gracious effort. Mm -hmm. um, and so as a pastor, yeah, it's one of those challenges of you, you can hear people like Alan Hirsch and others, you know, mm -hmm. the, the missional churches, disciples that make disciples. I just haven't come across a lot of those churches. So either we're all doing it wrong or Jesus just likes it being a little messy. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take, I'll take the second answer. <laughs> yeah. And again, I like Hirsch, right. And I've met, oh, yeah. I've met oh, him. No. He's yeah. wonderful, but like, those are the, the sort of things I wrestle with of like, yeah, of course. Like I want to see more disciples make disciples. And I've personally, like you, you, you know, as a pastor, like you, you decide, okay, like there's, lots of different avenues I can form people. And there's maybe only a handful of people I can really like go deep with one-on-one. -on -one. And like, I'm hoping these are going to be like the people that grow up into leaders. Like so few do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And even the ones that do like some of the best people I've had the opportunity to walk alongside and, and try to help in their discipleship. Like they're still not discipling anybody, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and like, this is years of work and they're capable and they're just not doing it yet. And and so there's these barriers and, and you just have to keep being creative and trusting that God has some sort of process in all of this, that it's not in vain. Mm, mm, very true. I, you, uh, you've one of the interesting parts, I think in the, the back end of the book is um, a couple of pages on calling and calling to ministry, um, which is um, uh, a, a really great um, concise. You do a great job with that. Um, and people understanding that and processing it. I'm assuming um, that, well, let me ask you, why, why did you put that in there? And then I have a follow-up question to that. What, what, what was the reason for that inclusion in, in the work for Rhythm for Life? Um, the honest answer is that we got a grant from a foundation and it was required as part of the grant to, um, <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. <laughs> uh, not that it was a bad thing, but the, the, yeah. they, they gave us a grant to help further develop it. And it was supposed to be like this vocational resource for okay. people going into ministry. And we're like, it's not exactly what it is. Mm -hmm. Um, but we really could use this money. And so what about if we do this? And they were like, yeah, that's fine. Um, <laughs> I like that. So like a bit that. of pragmatism, but, um, <laughs> in that, in that appendix that, that we put in there, um, the goal is, is I do think 
like that kind of communal discernment gets lost a bit mm-hmm. in the calling piece. Um, and, and in part because the church is so fragmented in terms of denominations and, and ways in which you can become a minister, a lot of the pressure then becomes on like a subjective sense of call. Mm. And that's certainly there for a lot of people I meet who are ministers. Yeah. But I also meet a lot of ministers who never had that kind of experience. It was just kind of, they had the skill, the giftedness, the desire, and a lot of external affirmation that, Hey, like you could, you could be doing this. And I, I used to wrestle with that when I was first in ministry, like, Oh, like, why would you do this if you didn't have some sort of personal call? Cause that was my experience. And then I met people who are just way better ministers than I am. who don't have that subjective as strongly. Hmm. Uh, and you realize like, is this bias on the subjective biblical or cultural and the biblical examples i think if we're honest with ourselves show like how narcissistic our culture is because we read someone like jeremiah's call or isaiah or paul and then we equate ourselves to these great heroes that made it in the canon and think i should have that too now there's a humility to that of like, yes, of course the Lord still calls everyday people and we can have those experiences. Right. But there's this, this strange uh, need, I think sometimes in discerning the call to somehow have like a call big enough that puts you in the very center of what God's doing in his salvation history. Hmm. Um, that's not always the case. Like most of us are supporting players. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. And, and there is a lot of people throughout scripture where we don't hear anything about how they discern their call, but they're very important. Mm-hmm. Priscilla and Aquila come to mind. So how do you, um, which is good. I mean, how do you, and, and I guess my, my take on is where we are today, um, not quite post pandemic, but we're in still in somewhat of a pandemic depending on where you are locale and, um, and how your area is handling uh, protocols, I guess. Um, but I'm, I'm reading, as everybody else is, uh, some of the statistics that are out there that are, I think, are real. I mean, if anything, I know a lot of, I, I know guys and women, too, that have, um, I mean, they're making an exit strategy. Um, they're choosing to move out and move on and get out of, you know, for one reason or another. And yet, you know, they're wrestling with a call in a sense that they know they've you know, they, they know this, they believe this is where they're supposed to be or, and yet they're exiting out and whether they're burned out or whether they're, you know, I guess part of my, <clears throat> what struck me when I read the book and then uh, just in, in a question in, in, in current context where people are, um, how do you approach or how would you approach calling to somebody that's really struggling with where they are and perhaps considering quitting, leaving, walking away. Um, mm-hmm. And and yet they're wrestling with, there's been this moment or this knowing that uh, sense that they are supposed to vocationally do a certain thing. And yet it's just not, it's about to kill them. You know, I, mm-hmm. what do you say to that? Or how do you, how do you approach that? Yeah. The first is always who are you talking to? Mm-hmm especially if I don't know them too well, like who are the people that know you well enough that can speak into this with you Mm -hmm. in the same way that I would never encourage anyone to stay in abusive relationship. Right. We seem all too eager to keep pastors in abusive communities. Mm. And like, we don't like to name like some churches get sick. They're all like like sick pictures. (laughs) Yeah. And like, they just, (laughs) yeah. And the church needs to die. Mm-hmm. And God lets churches die mm-hmm. over time, right? At least in the, in the sense of that local expression. Um, and so that's the first concern is sometimes people do need to leave. It doesn't mean they need to leave ministry, but they might need a season of, of taking a breather. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I think um, this quote from Rob Bell of all people, um, I think he said that catalyst a long time ago. It's like, does, do any of you pastors feel like you signed up for a movement and got handed an institution? Hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people who are burning out 
or need out. I actually think that might really be at the heart of it. So like that was probably gnawing at them a little bit. Mm-hmm. And then you get like, I don't know about you guys, but I felt like the pandemic just became like institution amplified because hmm. it became about new systems and new like things and, mm-hmm. and like complete like disembodiment of, of connection and why I like doing what I do. Like I hated preaching to a camera without people. <laughs> Like I honestly, like I, I would leave and like sometimes cry in my car afterwards. Mm. Cause I was like, this is not ministry. Now I know some people like they love doing that and like they feel a sense of calling. So like, it's not a judgment on the medium. Right. It's a comment on how that medium doesn't work for everybody. Mm. And, and so I, I think for people who are like, should I stay or go? I, I don't think it's a new issue. I think it's, it was something there that then got gasoline dumped on it. Uh, amplified for sure. Yeah. And, and so for some people it's yes, you, you got to stay mm-hmm. um, for others. It's you need a sabbatical or you need to go do something else for a season. Mm-hmm. And for others still, it's, you might just need a change of location. Mm-hmm. I think it is, it's easy as pastors get our calling confused with the place. Mm-hmm. And, um, I wrestle with that. I mean, I, I just had a sabbatical uh, last year for five months and I was spoiled by my church. And I was asking those questions like here I have like a pretty healthy church. That's willing to give me a five month paid sabbatical. And I'm asking questions like, do I want to go back to this? Mm. And having to really work that out with the Lord and feeling, a yeah, he's still calling me to this work, mm-hmm. but not confuse it too much with the place that I could still be a pastor somewhere else, or I could go take a, another job and still be a pastor. Mm-hmm. I can still pastor people. It's not contingent on me having a local church. And, and, and so like, I, I do think that's where like expanding our sense of vocation helps a bit right. is some people are not called to lead organizations and yet pastors are ex- especially like pastors that like I, I, my heart goes out to the ones where it's like, you don't even have an administrator. Like it's you mm-hmm. and 50 people, right. which is most churches. Mm-hmm. And you're supposed to be able to like manage everything from finances to funerals, to marriages, to sermons, to like house calls, hospital visits and clean up the bathrooms. <laughs> yeah. And then yeah, clean up the bathrooms, you know, keep the building maintained. Like, yeah no one can do it all. And so I, I think some of it is a, a structural issue that it's just too much for one person. And then we spiritualize it like, well, in my weakness, then I'm strong. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, but you're literally like <laughs> doing four jobs. Yeah. And like, that wasn't what Paul was talking about. And also like Paul didn't have technology and like had to walk everywhere. Most uh, or take a ship and, you know, like, <laughs> like, like and it was an easy journey. I mean, uh, <laughs> no, but like we project our modern workaholism onto Paul and then yeah. use him to justify it. And Boy, Western ideology. I know. Yeah. Right? So I, I'm, I'm getting a bit off, but I think for people who are in that place for me uh, and having kind of wrestled with that, I think every pastor probably wrestled with it through the pandemic to some degree. It's like just holding space with people. And giving them permission to like air their experience. Cause I think as pastors so often we just swallow it down. Mm-hmm. Like I still think about harsh things people said to me like seven years ago. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, yeah. And, yeah. and it's because we, we don't know who we can tell those things to or who, who can carry it. And so I think for the pastors that are just about done, I think there's just a lot of things that need to be offloaded before like honest discernment about the longevity of their call could be there. And it's like, yeah, let's like, let's deconstruct some of this baggage first. It sounds like you need, I mean, I think where you started at the very beginning, um, it, it's, it's important to have someone else to talk to um, and to have that conversation with, um, to unpack that and process it um, as well. Relationships and community. Yeah. Yeah. So, wow. Yep. Well, good stuff, man. Well, thank you. This was good. This was fun. I appreciate um, appreciate your time. And you're probably just uh, getting ready to go to lunch before long, right? 
That's right. Yeah, just about lunchtime. He's going to that great sushi place. I know. Right. <laughs> He's already giving us some ideas for I, lunch, right? I know that place. So, th- thank you so much for uh, being on the on the podcast today. How can people best connect with you? How can they connect with the Rhythms for Life uh, book or resources that go along with it? Yeah, uh, there's a free workbook and supporting videos at alistairstern.com. Um, I'm on Instagram and Facebook and those things, but pretty terrible at using them. Um, you can email me and my email is on my church website, stpetersfireside.org. And uh, yeah, I, I think if you're wanting to go through rhythms and wanting to lead a group through it, those resources would be of benefit to you and to your church. Cool. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for being here today. And thank you for joining us on the Reimagined podcast. As always, you can follow us on iTunes, Spotify, Overcast, and download any of the episodes and rate them. Check us out on the reimaginedcast.com website. So for Brad and Brian, I'm Greg. Thanks for listening to the Reimagined podcast. Podcast.